uh, several years ago that the lovable beer-sipping slug that sat at the end of the bar in a place called Cheers best summarized our topic for today when as he walked through the door at the end of another difficult day and was greeted by Sam's familiar greeting of, Norm, how's it going out there? Responded with these words, It's a dog-eat-dog world, Sammy, and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. I like that. That's a classic. In other words, what he's trying to get across to us is, you know, it's a battle out there. And uh, I was curious as I was thinking about our topic for today, how many of you um, experienced or found themselves in the midst of a battle of sorts this week? It's a battle out there, and, uh, you know, I think we can relate to Norm. Uh, I don't know if your battle was in the workplace. It may have been with a boss. It may have been with an employee. It may have been with a co-worker or a customer or a creditor, or maybe the cash wasn't flowing in your direction. Uh, you know, the battle is out there. It could have been, like in our case, with uh, inspectors and government agencies. Um, perhaps it was in your home. The battle may have been with a spouse or a child, or even if you're a child, maybe with a parent. Um, the battle is all over the place. Our battle took place last night. It wasn't in our home. It was a place called Polly's on Tustin. And the battle that tore at our soul was, do we have an iced tea at 8.30 at night or do we go the safe route and get water with lemon? <laughs> we did not take the safe route. And I've been waiting since about 3 this morning to get here and just lay this out on you. <laughs> at 2, Linda left the room to go grab a book and read somewhere and disappeared till 4 something. And uh, so, we're ready for you! So anyway, but you know, maybe on a more serious note, your battle was with health, health issues or aging or your friends or a neighbor or a teacher or a student or a classmate or a coach or a teammate, or maybe your battle is with the bulge, or your battle may be with finances, but nonetheless, there's a battle out there. And the very real, real and serious battle is the one that takes place in the battle of our hearts and in our minds, whereas the Apostle Paul best stated, he said, why is it that I'm doing the things that I don't want to do and the things I do want to do I don't do, and oh, wretched man that I am, who can set me free from this mess? That's the struggle that we all go through. And uh, I came across, the, as I was leaving the locker room a couple of weeks ago, I uh, came across the player who had just left a meeting with his, uh, with his coaching staff. And... Uh, he said, uh, in simple terms, he said, you know, I just blew it in there. And he was just irate. He was upset. He was fuming. Here was a man who loves God and the things of God. He's a Christian man that admitted that, you know what, I just lost it in there. And uh, he, he admitted to me the same thing that many of us are already aware, and that is sometimes there's a struggle with what he called, you know, there's a times I just struggle with my dark side. You know, that classic confrontation and battle. And, you know, the Bible talks a lot about, you know, life being a battle. Because it is a battle. And, uh, you know, the Bible mentions that we're in a spiritual warfare. It talks of fighting the good fight and running the race and, and running in a way to win. And it talks about the strategies or the schemes of the devil or our enemy. And uh, we're in a battle, and today we'll discover as uh, we complete our study in the book of First Peter that there's actually hope beyond that battle. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we pick up and complete this study that has uh, renewed our sense of hope that God is in control, that there's a purpose and a reason for everything, and that we can look forward with great anticipation to the future, knowing that God's purposes and His plans will be fulfilled exactly as He intends them to be. 
In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read of this battle that we're in. In this final section, uh, Peter restores our hope beyond the battle as he gives us, as we look at this, a winning strategy. And in verse 8, we read this. Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God and to stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends your greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love, and peace be to, peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. In this final section, we're going to see that Peter outlines and lays out for us a very simple strategy for winning this battle that we find ourselves in on a regular basis. In the battle, as we shall see it, it starts in verse 8, and we see that he basically gives us three points or three things that we need to recognize about this battle that we're in. The first thing is this. He tells us that we're to respect our enemy. To respect our enemy. It, it goes you know, without saying that if we're in a battle, there must be an enemy. And uh, it's interesting as we go through and look at this that the classic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between light and darkness... As, as we hear it so often told, uh, it's kind of the, you know, the, the image that several have portrayed of there being you know, an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder and this battle that takes place in our life. Do we, are we going to do what's right before God? Are we going to do that which is wrong before God? And this, this ancient battle that takes place is laid out before us and identified in a clear way that we can look at it. And throughout our study, we've learned that God uses suffering in our life and trials to draw us closer to himself. But what's fascinating is, as we are going through these trials and suffering, that God says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you'll be perfect and complete, a man of God, lacking in nothing. He says that, you know, there is a perfect uh, result of these trials if we allow God to work in our life. On the other hand, while God uses trials to draw us closer to himself, I'll guarantee you this, our enemy, this, the, the devil, Satan himself, will use those same trials to try to pry us away from God. And as we look at the history of his strategies and his schemes that we'll talk about in a minute, we'll see that's exactly what he tries to do. He takes the same set of circumstances that God says will draw us close to him. He takes those same, same set of circumstances and wants us to curse God, as Job's wife said, blame God for all of our problems, to walk away from God because obviously God must not love us, that he would allow us to go through such things. And his design or his purpose is to pry us away from our relationship with God. So that's the battleground that we see. Here we find some crucial advice in this passage on how we're to do battle with the devil and how to keep him from gaining victory over our lives. Now, the first thing that we're going to have to do is respect our enemy. Uh, Dwight Pentecost writes this in his book, Your Adversary the Devil. He says this, No military commander could expect to be victorious in battle unless he understood his enemy. Should he prepare for an attack by land and ignore the possibility that the enemy might approach by air or by sea, he would be op opening the way to defeat. Or should he prepare for a land and sea attack and ignore the possibility of an attack through the air, he would certainly jeopardize the campaign. It says, no individual can be victorious against the adversary of our souls unless he understands that adversary. 
unless he understands his philosophy, his methods, his strategies, his schemes, and his methods of temptation. And as we look at this, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, in our culture today, we have just about done away with all conversation as far as uh, the devil is concerned. We have done away with all conversation as far as the Bible teaches of, of the, the reality of hell. We don't want to talk about these things, and so we minimize them or we put them on the back shelf and we don't want to discuss it. And yet, as we look at this particular passage, we need to be faithful what God has to say, and he introduces to us the fact that there is a very real personality, and his name is the devil. And a guaranteed way to taste defeat in life is to underestimate or show disrespect to your opponent. One thing I've learned from years being involved in athletics is that, you know, you never show disrespect to your opponent. You always respect your opponent. The moment you do not respect your opponent, you're in for big trouble. A very vivid illustration in my own personal life, it was our senior year of high school, we're playing football. We're playing a team that there's no way in the world that they will ever beat us. They are that bad. We know they are that bad, and we know we are much better than them. And so our whole strategy for preparing for this game changed from how we, we prepared for every other game. It was relaxed, it was loose, we had a great time. Uh, at that particular time, we had this thing where we liked to, you know, we were just going to you know, kind of show up our opponents, and, and we had, you know, the music was blasting in the background in the locker room, and we were just having a great time. Then we got uh, medical tape, and we taped up our shoes so they were all white, you know, and we kind of wrote stuff on our shoes, and we taped up our legs so they were all white all the way up, you know, man, we were looking cool. And uh, the thing that we forgot was is that, you know, they actually believed that they might have a cha chance against us. And we went out onto the field, and they proceeded to pound us for the whole first half. And I remember vividly in the locker room, all these guys, and we're all sitting there, and you're just kind of like sitting there just going like this. <laughs> what in the world? You know, and slowly, one at a time, everyone started taking all the tape off their shoes, you know, wadding up in a big ball. And there's like this ball. It looked like a big old snowball in the corner of all this tape that we threw over there. And unfortunately, by the time we came to our senses, we weren't good enough to do anything but tie them to end the game. Now, there's a lot of learning experience that comes from a time like that because what you do is when you underestimate or you show disrespect to your opponent, then you know what? Anything can happen to you. And it's true in athletics and it's certainly true in business. For those who are in business and, and are putting together strategies and they have a, an, an opponent or a competitor and they underestimate what can happen, you never underestimate your opponent. You show respect to your opponent. And uh, remember, now if you've got your Bible still open, remember what he already told us in, in 1 Peter. Look at chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. The word picture that's used there is the time that Jesus uh, washed the feet of his disciples, and none of his disciples did that. The same word is used of clothing yourself or taking on that apron and tying it on yourself, tying on humility in your own life. And uh, he says, that clothe, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Why? For God is opposed to the proud. The word opposed literally means that God is set in concrete, that he won't change his mind about proud people. He didn't change his mind about King Saul, who was a leader of Israel, who was capable, yet he was proud, and he was in rebellion against the authority of God. He was set in concrete against him and said, you know what, I'm taking his kingdom away from him and I'll give it to someone else who is more faithful and someone else, as it turned out, who was much more humble. 
you know, if you think about the succession that took place uh, as David took over for King Saul, you know, here's David out in the wilderness watching sheep and he was submitting to the authority of his family. Even when he heard that they were looking for a successor to Saul, he never sent word that, hey, when's it my turn to come in and uh, interview for the position? It was after every one of his brothers had paraded before him and yet it was not one of them that God had chosen that Samuel said, hey, is there anybody else in your family? said, yeah, we just got some little guy out in the middle of the wilderness. He's watching the sheep. I mean, we can bring him in, but you aren't going to really want him because of his appearance. You know, he's small and he's nothing like Saul and he he just doesn't fit the profile of what you're looking for. See, and I love that because we live in a world that we've got to fit certain profiles. You know, especially in athletics, it's you fit a profile. You're either a certain size, a certain weight, you're a certain speed, you're a certain this or that. But the problem with profiles is, is God says, I don't go by man's profile. What I do is I look at the inner quality of a man. I look at his heart, and that's the profile that I'm looking for. You know, and I've never seen a scout that can measure hearts. And that's the intangible that makes some people so much different than others who have all the talent and yet have no heart. And as we look at this, we see that, you know, he's saying that humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, we need to understand something, and that is Satan is our adversary. It says, be self-controlled and on the alert for your enemy. In this particular new IV, in the New American Standard, it says your adversary. The term adversary means opponent. It was a word that was used of a courtroom drama. And here was a person who is, here's, here's a being who is our adversary. Have you ever been in a court situation? Anybody been in a court situation? Okay, here's what usually happens in court. Let me just explain something to you. In a court of law, no one is interested in justice. In a court of law, there's only one thing that we're interested in, and that is who's going to win. It isn't a question of justice, it's a question of who's going to win. You've got on one side the adversary who is trying to defeat you, he is your opponent. You've got on the other side the advocate who is trying to defend you, and he's the one that's trying to give his case uh, to the jury, to the judge, or to the court, or whatever. No one's interested in justice. We're all interested in presentation. Who puts on the best presentation? And what's fascinating about this is this. We have unfortunately been in a court situation in the construction industry and you sit there and the first time I was as naive as anybody else is sitting there because I know that justice will prevail. (laughs) Now let me change that. I knew that justice would prevail. So we're sitting in the court and the person who is, is up there that owes money to our company proceeds to lie every way that he can. Now you're sitting there going, Hey! Hey! Hey, he's, he's lying. He's lying. And you talk about so stupid and naive. It's like, he's lying. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Oh, I do. And then they lie. Because if they tell the truth, you wouldn't even be there to begin with. It would have been over a long time ago. It would have just been done. You wouldn't be there. So we sit there and we get all like, but he's lying. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because he wants to beat you. And he will do whatever he can do to beat you. That is what it's all about. Your adversary wants to beat you. He's not your friend. He's not your playmate. He's not, you know, anything but your foe. Don't mess around with your enemy or your adversary, your opponent. They want to beat you. That's their purpose. What's interesting is, is that, you know, when you look at it, Satan's constant relationship with the child of God is an adversarial one. He wants to defeat us. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus is our advocate. 
while Satan accuses us before God, Jesus defends us before the Father. While Satan accuses us, even in our own minds, how many times have you doubted, how many times have you doubted that you're even a Christian? I don't feel like one today. You know, I blew it. I must not, you know, like when I was talking, to, hey, I blew it. Uh, you know, I had a bad day. Uh, I did some things I shouldn't have done. I must not even be a Christian. See, wh why do we think that? Because we are being accused by our enemy that we aren't even Christians. We are being accused that, you know, no, you're not going to heaven. You nuts. We're being accused constantly. Not only before God, but we are being accused in our own hearts. And as we look at this turmoil that goes on, the battle intensifies because there's a struggle. And as we see, as we will see here in a minute, let me help put it all together. But the reality is that he wants to accuse us. Notice his style. Your enemy prowls. He's a prowler. Quietly prowling about, looking for a way to gain an edge in your life so he can destroy you. Understand something. The devil isn't that little dude in that red suit with the tail and the pitchfork and the goofy looking thing. That's not the devil. He's a formidable foe. And as we'll see in a minute, you know what? He disguises himself as the angel of light. The Bible says that the devil was the, most, the serpent was the most beautiful creature in all God's creation. He doesn't come to you looking like the devil. Because that would probably scare us. He comes to us in other ways that are attractive. We need to recognize that. Now the question is, how do you show respect to such an enemy? Notice the command that we see. Be self-controlled and alert. Be of sober spirit and on the alert. That's how you show respect. Be self-controlled or show sober spirit and be alert. Peter recognized this well. Why? Because what was, what was Jesus' condemnation of Peter as he, was being, as he was about to be arrested in the garden? Can you not stay awake? There was a time in Peter's life where he knew what it meant to have fallen asleep. To not to be alert. To not to show respect to the enemy. To take it lightly. And the Bible says that, you know what, that he failed because of that. Don't underestimate him. Consider what the Bible has to say about Satan. Listen to the names that Satan has given. He is called Satan, which means adversary or opponent. He is called the devil, which means slanderer. His titles are that of evil one, tempter, the god of this age, the accuser. He's represented as a serpent, as a dragon, and yet also as an angel of light. He's described as a murderer, and a liar, and a sinner, an accuser, and a destroyer. Satan is a dangerous enemy, as one man writes. He is a serpent who can bite us when we least expect it. He is a destroyer and an accuser. He has great power and intelligence, and a host of demons who assist him in his attacks against God's people. He is a formidable enemy we must never joke about, ignore, or underestimate his, underestimate his ability. We must be sober and have our minds under control when it comes to our conflict with Satan. Perhaps the greatest mistake that any Christian could make is to give Satan too much credit for what goes on in the world and at the same time not give him any credit 
for what he's actually doing. And that's why it's important to see what the Bible has to say about this particular enemy. Look at the word picture that he uses. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, use this in the cultural context in which it was written. Picture yourself for a moment being in an environment where Christians are being hauled away to the Colosseum in Rome and they're being thrown out onto the field of play, so to speak, and then lions are let loose and the contest is to see how long you can survive before the lion catches up with you and devours you and eats you alive. That is the context that is used. That is the truth historically of what took place. And the word picture we're being given is that of an enemy who is out to destroy our lives. Don't ever forget that. And don't ever forget that picture. I like what one man says. To defeat the devil, we must be first alert to his presence, respect him, not fear or revere him, but respect him. Like an electrician respects the killing power of electricity. When we first started our company several years ago, we had a very limited workforce. It was basically my partner and myself. <laughs> Somewhat limited. And uh, very limited when I was out trying to actually do work in the field, do physical installations. One of the things that we did was we would do the electrical as well as putting in heating and air conditioning, and I'm not very talented mechanically, and, uh, but you, know, you do what you have to do. Necessity, as they say, is the mother of invention. So anyway, I can recall very vividly being out at one particular house and uh, changing the uh, breaker in the panel, not realizing that when you lay a screwdriver across three or four breakers, that uh, it, it produces a sense of excitement in your life. <laughs> and uh, when I got knocked down and I was laying, looking straight up in the air, thinking, you know, we need to hire some guys who know how to do this. I had a, a tremendous amount of respect after the fact for what electricity could do. So I always made sure that I was somewhere else and had my partner then take care of the electrical. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like you learn something from that, and all you got to do is get shocked one time to learn that, you know what, respect is probably the best way to go. And as we look at all this, you know, how does that happen in our life? Well, your guard is down. How does the enemy get a foothold in your life? Your guard is down. And we need to recognize that, you know what, hey, we need to respect him first of all. You always respect your opponent. The second thing you've got to do is this, and that's we have to recognize our enemy. Say, well, recognize, what do you mean? I mean, how does that differ from respect? Well, re recognizing, recognizing our enemy has to do with, uh, as, you, as you consider the fact that, you know, let me give you an example. Turn with me to Luke chapter uh, 22. It differs from respect in that we need to not only respect his power, uh, but also we have to recognize his purpose. In Luke chapter 22, Peter, I'm sure, remembered this scene very vividly as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write the words that we see in 1 Peter 5. But look at Luke chapter 22 and starting with verse 24. This is kind of fascinating because it ties in a whole bunch of stuff together that we've already been talking about. But in verse 24, it says, There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Don't you like that? This is like the fourth time that I read in, in, in the Scripture somewhere that the disciples would get together and they would debate and argue about which one of them was going to be the greatest. You know, and, uh, you know, and, some, and then sometimes Jesus would say, hey, what were you guys talking about? He already knew. And they wouldn't say because they had been discussing and debating which one of them would be the greatest. 
Now, isn't that interesting as you consider the fact that in 1 Peter 5, Peter's whole tune changes to, they used to debate on which one will be the greatest, to, you know what, uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and let him take care of who's going to, he's going to exalt whomever, whenever he wants. But anyway, it goes on and says, And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, but let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. It says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. Isn't that a fascinating passage as we consider now what's being written here? Saying, you know what? Hey, Peter, let me tell you something. Satan has demanded permission. Isn't that just like Satan? He's not asking permission. He's demanding permission of God to sift Peter like wheat. Now, I'm sure for the women that bake or for the few guys that do that, um, not that, is that a sexist thing to say? Is that politically incorrect? I don't care. Um, <laughs> is it true? I mean, how, I mean, how many women bake in here or have baked? All right, all right. Oh, gee. I mean, how, how many eat out every day? How many, hey, how many know what baking used to be? <laughs> how many of your grandmothers used to bake? Hallelujah. Yeah, all right. Forget it. We're, we're going down a road. It's not going to go anywhere. All right. Anyway, sifting wheat. I, I, could, I, I remember my grandmother used to bake pies and stuff like that, and she would sift the wheat, and they'd put it in a big sifter, and she'd squeeze the thing like this, and that's why she had forearms like Steve Garvey. But, but, uh, but she'd sift it, you know, and that's what he's saying is the word picture is, that, hey, you know what Satan wanted to do? He wanted, he wanted to just put you in the wheat sifter and just sift you and just strain you and just squeeze you and just mess you up. And he demanded permission to do that. But you know what? I said no. Isn't it interesting? What is Satan... Recognize our enemy. What is Satan's purpose today? It is to destroy us. To sift us like wheat. He hates us. Why does he hate us? Because he hates God. He hates our Father. He hates us. He wants to destroy us. Why does Satan hate God? Because he couldn't be God. Isn't that true? Satan hates God because he couldn't be God. Why does mankind hate God? Hey, I'm over here. Why does mankind hate God? I don't know. I thought for a minute I left. Um, sometimes i got to go like this. And I'm about to come out like a, a, a prowler for those of you who are dozing off. And I'm one of these days, I'm going to sit right next to you. And I'm just going to keep talking. And I'm going to say, excuse me, uh, do you have a pen for some notes? Uh, but why does Satan hate God? Because he couldn't be God. 
Why does mankind hate God? Because we can't be God. Isn't that true? Satan hates God because he couldn't be God. Men and women hate God because they can't be God. The problem is there's only one God. Hear this, O Israel, and know it for a fact that it's true. There is only one God. And as the priest told Rudy in the movie Rudy about what he had learned in years of ministry, he said, there's only two things I know. There is a God, and I'm not him. <laughs> All right? That's the truth. And the reason people hate God is because they have a choice to make. If he is God, they must either submit to the will of God or they must rebel against his will. There are only two choices in life. You will humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you at the proper time or you will rebel and shake your fist in the face of God and say, not your will, but mine will be done. Thank you. Like Captain Dan on the mast of the ship in the movie Forrest Gump. A man who lost his legs, a man who was a, 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 a drunk, a man who was filled with hate and rage, and in the midst of a storm, he was strapped to the mast of the ship as it was about to go down. He shook his fist in the face of God and shouted out and cursed God. Don't you ever let anyone tell you that all have not sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because in the heart of every man is rebellion, and we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. Like sheep, we have gone astray. The heart of man is wickedness and evil and every other unthinkable thing. But thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who sets us free from that bond of sin. You see, that's the truth and the reality of what the Bible teaches. That there's none righteous. And as we look at this and we see this, Satan hates God because he cannot be God. Men and women hate God today because they would have to submit to his will instead of theirs being done. And that's as simple as it gets. Not only should we recognize he hates us, we also need to recognize he wants to destroy us. You know what's fascinating to me is, stop and think about this for a moment, don't help him out. Don't help him. Would you help your opponent in court defeat you? Always cracks me up. This is one I never understood. Especially when I was working with guys who were playing professional football, right? Why would you help a guy up who just knocked you down? It's like, what are you thinking? He wants to beat you. He wants to wear you out. He wants to defeat you. It may look gracious, but I've often wondered about that as a strategy. You get knocked down by the guy, you're all laying on the ground, you jump up and you help him up. As if to say, thanks for knocking me down. Let me help you up. Why would you help anyone? Why would you help Satan? He's trying to destroy you anyway. Don't help him by giving in to his strategies. That's ridiculous. What's the number one strategy of the devil? Anybody have any ideas? Number one strategy of the devil. we got two minutes for, for your response. And, uh, and, you know, this isn't equal time here. This isn't... What's the number one strategy of the devil? <laughs> to confuse. <laughs> what? Guilt. guilt. The accuser causes guilt in their life. Sometimes the guilt is actually from God. Uh, we, you know, if we were doing that which is wrong, we'll be convicted of sin. The Holy Spirit in our life will say, hey, you know what? You're doing the wrong thing. Okay. Uh, well, what? Discouragement, accusing, 
Doubt. Doubt what? Doubt God. Doubt the promises of God. Doubt the Word of God. I am convinced of this, that the number one strategy of the devil is to cast doubt upon the truth of the Word of God. Do we have anything here? We donuts, anything? Prizes. We're going to give them out. The number, one, the number one strategy of the devil from day one is to cause doubt upon the Word of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Quickly. We're running out of time. Genesis 3. Now the, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And, and he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Is that what he said? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not touch it. Uh, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they, were, and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings and God came onto the scene and says, where are you and we're hiding and why are you hiding because you're naked? Who told you you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? And God knew all this. And the bottom line in verse 7 it says, the serpent deceived me. How? He cast doubt upon the truth of the Word of God. The number one method or strategy of the devil is to cast doubt upon the truth of the Word of God. What do we recognize about him? He hates us. He wants to destroy us. He wants to deceive us by casting doubt upon the Word of God. Think about how he does it in our culture today. Surely God did not say that you must receive and believe in Jesus Christ to get to heaven. Surely He could not have meant that. Because look at all the good people in the world. world. Surely God is not going to condemn them to hell just because they reject Jesus when they're doing all this good stuff. Surely God couldn't have meant that. What is He doing? He's casting doubt upon the Word of God. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me, that's what He meant and that's what He said. But the accuser who wants to destroy mankind says, you can't believe that. That doesn't make any sense, does it? That's foolishness in our world today, isn't it? And God says the wisdom of man is but foolishness to God. And God takes the foolish things of the world and, and the wisdom of the world and makes it foolish. God's Word is true and reliable. And the moment we begin to doubt it is the moment we get into trouble. The moment we get into trouble in every area of life. Surely God didn't mean in this case, thou shalt not lie. He knows you need to cover your bases. Surely in this case it's okay to do this. Surely in this case God couldn't really mean for you to wait to have sex outside of marriage because you love each other. You're committed to each other. That can't be what He really means. Surely God didn't mean that. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Not to the world, but to God it does. The number one strategy of our enemy is to cast doubt upon the Word of God. The number one strategy of our enemy is to do this, to make the worse look the better. To make the worse look the better. Doesn't that fruit there look so good? Taste it and eat it because God's lying to you. You'll be just like Him 
in the heart of man says, I want to be like God. I want to be my own God. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that pleases me. And if that's why God doesn't want me to eat that, I'm going to eat it so that I don't have to listen to anybody anymore. Wow. And they ate. And they were naked. And they died. And just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. They died. Spiritually. They died physically. Because they sinned. We too are dead spiritually. We're born with a congenital spiritual defect. We're dead spiritually. We will die physically. And it's the consequences of sin because our enemy who hates mankind said that's not what's going to happen. But it did, didn't it? So who are we to believe? Him or God? He hates us. He wants to deceive us. He wants to destroy us. But also remember this. You know what? Satan is limited in what he can do. Isn't that great? Satan had to go to permission to God to attack Job. Even though Satan demanded permission of God to sift Peter, Jesus said, No, I have prayed for you. And when you turn around, after you fail, and after you turn around, you will be a foundation of my plan. Isn't that great? He had asked permission. Isn't that wonderful to know that we have an enemy that is limited in what he can do in our lives? And everything that he does has to be thrown and, and put before the throne of God for him to decide. Isn't that fascinating? Now also, let, let, me, let me read this to you because this is really important. A part of soberness or, uh, soberness or being sober-minded or alert includes not blaming everything on the devil. Remember Flip Wilson, the old show? The devil made me do it! That was his line. The devil made me do it. Why did he do what he did? The devil made me do it. Never took responsibility for his own actions. It was always the devil that made him do it. Now, here's another problem, too. We've got people that blame the devil for everything. They blame the devil because they got a headache. They blame the devil and his demons because they got a flat tire. Their rent's high. You know, we talk about the demon of lust and the demon of donut eating. You know, and, and we need to cast out the demon of donut eating. You know, and uh, we need to cast out this demon or that one, and we give them all names. There's the demon of lust, the demon of donut eating. There's the you know the demon of nail biting. Uh, there's the the demon of you know bad haircuts. Uh, you know, th- there's 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 all these demons. You know, and 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 let me let me just share something with you, okay? I mean, I like to read. I read a lot. I love Christian. I mean, I've I've read a few Christian fictions. I'm not really as much into that as, as reality, but. Um, the thing about Christian fictions that's kind of interesting is that sometimes people read Christian fictions and they build their whole theology on a fiction. Can I just explain something to you? The word fiction means not real. All right? So this is really important foundation to lay. Okay? If you read a book that is a fiction book, it is not real and it doesn't necessarily mean that its basis is scriptural. All right? Understand something. Christian fictions are not real, but the Bible is. All right? Can we all agree to that? Because, man, we see you know, some of the, the dumbest things in society today are promoted because of fiction books that are great and they get you to think about spiritual things, but they're just not true. So don't blame everything on the devil because, you know what, the devil's limited and there's no identifying demons in the Bible that this is a demon of, you know, bloody noses. I mean, it just it isn't there. Maybe in a fiction book that you read, but it's not in the Bible. So recognize our enemy and recognize what God says about our enemy. Number one is we need to respect our enemy. Number two is recognize who he is. And the third thing and the most important thing of the three as we look at them all together and put it all together is this. We need to resist him. Resist him. 
standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him. The word resist means to withstand, to be firm against someone else's onset rather than to strive against that one. Isn't that interesting? Hey, look, look in, the, in the book of Jude for a second. Um, and, and it'll be fun just to find it. The book of Jude. One little chapter, but notice something about it. You know, we, we get foolish sometimes and think, you know what? Oh, now I'm a child of God. I'm going to take on the devil. Come on. I'm going to take him on. The word resist actually means to hunker down. It means to stand firm in place. It doesn't mean to attack him, but it means to stand firm in the faith. It means if he attacks you, you can stand firm and resist him, but it doesn't mean we go after him and try to attack him because he's a formidable foe. And in fact, look at the archangel Michael in Jude verse 9. says, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Isn't that awesome? You know, it's so foolish. We are just stupid people sometimes. It's like, hey, I can take on the devil now. No, you can't. Michael the archangel couldn't do it. But he said, hey, you know what? May the Lord rebuke you. It's important to recognize withstanding the enemy means basically to stand firm in the Word of God. To stand firm in the Word of God. We need to realize that, you know what? We stand firm in the faith. The Christian faith. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that He loved us and He gave His life for us, that He died for us, and He rose from the dead, and He defeated death, and He defeated Satan, our last great enemy, and He destroyed Him for all of eternity. And because we believe and trust in Him, that we can live with God forever and ever, and not because of us, but because of Him. And He says that we're to resist our enemy by standing firm in the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan came to him and he again caused doubt upon the Word of God. And Jesus' rebuke to Satan was to rebuke him with the Word of God. When you are accused or you're being accused by Satan that you're not even a child of God, the thing that we rebuke him with is, hey, you know what, but by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, so none of us would ever boast. If the Bible says, for those who have received Jesus Christ, He became a child of God to those who believe in His name, that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, I believe in Jesus Christ. And when the Satan, the accuser, puts doubt in your mind about whether you're even a child of God or not, that your spirit, God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this is the witness or the testimony that God has given us His only begotten Son. And we come back at those doubts that we have with the firm foundation and confidence of the Word of God. The problem that some of us have is we cannot resist our enemy because we have no weapon to use and the weapon is the Word of God. We must spend time, I don't care how many times you come to church, and I hope you would hear it over and over again, we must spend time in the Word of God. You have got to study it, you have got to meditate on it, you have got to ingest it, you have got to make it a part of your being because when you are attacked by our accuser, the enemy, he will attack you, he will try to destroy you. We are to withstand in the Word of God. Oh, man, that's what sets us free. That's what gives us strength and hope beyond just our own selves. I have no confidence in myself. I'm filled with doubts like everybody else. The thing that, that I rely upon is the confidence that I have as I get when I read the Word of God. God said it and I believe it. And our enemy wants to cast doubt on that. And that's his strategy and that's his method. But thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who sets us free from this body of sin. Isn't that wonderful stuff? If you look at it, we'll close on this. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 6. Close, close with this thought. 
Jesus rebuked Satan by quoting the Word of God. How much more should we? To withstand the, and resist our enemy, it helps to pray. Jesus said, pray. Pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray that you not enter into temptation. God, give me strength. God, give me help. God, bring back to my remembrance right now Your Word. God, help me to realize we're in a spiritual battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. In chapter 6, verse 10. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm. There it is. Against what? The strategies, the schemes, the methods of the enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance, perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Then in proclaiming it, I may boldly as I ought to speak. Isn't that awesome? The Word of God. Stand firm in the Word of God. And as First Peter closes, as Peter closes his, his letter to us, he says this about our hope. He says, Through Silas, our faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, to stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. He says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. And this is what I love. He says, Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. You know what? There's only one way that we can have peace in the midst of our battle. And the Bible says it's when we're in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. There is no peace in this life outside of peace that we get that surpasses all understanding when we, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. That's the only peace that we'll ever have. We're to have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we have peace with God, we then have peace with ourselves. And when we have peace with God and peace with ourselves, we then have peace with one another. If you're here today and you don't have peace in your heart and you're not sure what would happen to you if you died today, the Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Give your life to Christ today and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for the study that has renewed our sense of hope that you are a God who's truly in control. God, we have an enemy that has been defeated. We need to respect him. We need to recognize what he tries to do in, in casting doubt upon your word and in wanting to destroy our lives. But we're also given hope because we can resist him. There's hope beyond the battle that as we know and understand your word, that you tell us that it's your word in which we'll stand firm, that your word is truth, and that you're to sanctify us and separate us in that truth. God, we just love you and we praise you and we, we thank you for the peace that we have as we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Um, next week.